Well, surprise news here at COP26 as China has made a statement via video that says that the nation is now committed to protecting the earth for its future inhabitants. And to achieve this, we'll ban internal combustion engine vehicles completely by 2040 and replace them with green electric transport. China's Transport Minister Li Yishen joins me on the line now from Beijing. Mr. Li, this is terrific news. How will you achieve this? Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. And the translation is coming in now. China will turn over entirely to electric transport by using our vast untapped resource of clean energy. Uh, Mr. Lee, do you mean renewables? Blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. We will use coal to fuel our power stations. But coal is far from a clean source of energy. Blah, blah, blah. We will use clean coal, coal that has been washed thoroughly before burning, so it burns cleanly. Uh, Mr. Lee, if you don't mind me saying, you've completely missed the point here. Blah, blah, blah. Dude, we're a superpower. Deal with it. Hello, welcome to Gareth Jones on Speed. I'm Gareth, he's Zog. Hello. Joining us for the second half of the show will be Alex Goy, who's been driving some ridiculously lovely cars this week. But for the first half of the show, to talk about F1, will you welcome, please, Sarah Leach. How are you doing, Sarah? Hello, I'm well, thanks. You enjoy the race? I enjoy the race. Hang on, we better set it at which race this was. Sorry, we're randomly starting here. Talking about the Mexican Grand Prix, which is at the Autodromo de Hermanos Rodriguez. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah. And who was it who asked me the other day, who was Hermanos Rodriguez? And I said, well, he wasn't a person. It was a pair of brothers. And what is it about Spanish culture that they like to name brothers, don't they? I don't know if you've seen Breaking Bad, but it was about the Hermanos de Polo, wasn't it, in some ways? And this is Hermanos de Grand Prix. But what a place for a race, Sarah. I bet you wish you were there as much as I wish I was there too. I mean, we both like a party, don't we? Uh, it did look like a party, didn't it? The atmosphere at that grandstand in Mexico was unbelievable. And Perez, what a reception. And I know. yeah, it was funny though, during the race, he was out in front. I don't want to give too much away, but he, when he was for that, moment when he was out in front it was like he was doing like a parade lap and they're all really cheering him on but I really think that stadium is like no other because it was similar atmosphere like they had this day of the dead atmosphere they all dressed up with the Mexican faces and paints and everything like that because I'm, I'm sure the day of the dead was only recently yeah I think it was earlier in the week Close to Halloween, but not on it, though. I don't think. Very nearly, almost. I apologise to the Mexican experts out there. I don't know exactly, but I know it was very recently. And it's just amazing how they celebrate. It was a really good atmosphere. Yeah, it's a really good race, I think, to watch and just soak up that atmosphere. And they missed last year, but they had a race before that. I love Mexico. I've been there, I think, three times. I worked there for a week when I was doing A1 Grand Prix. It's 
strangely familiar. That's what I discovered about going to Mexico. It feels European, particularly because when you go there, a lot of the cars that they drive in Mexico are different to North American cars. You get a strange mix of North American cars and European cars. And while I was there, you were able to buy the Ford car, the European Ford car that was on sale in Mexico. That was kind of nice seeing that on the road. Slightly different boot, though. If you want to get into the fineries of different versions of cars, the Ford car in Mexico had a different boot treatment. It was the same car. Love Mexico. And Zog, you'll remember this. One of the reasons I love Mexico is one of my first crushes as a kid was on the woman who played Vittoria in the High Chaparral, a Western series that was on TV in the 60s. I remember it well, yes. Blue Boy and uh, who yeah. else was in it? Hoss. Yeah, yeah. Great show. And Victoria, I always thought, oh, she's so beautiful. I was only like 10 or something. Mexican woman. And it turns out she wasn't actually Mexican. She was actually an Argentinian actor who I discovered only a few years ago. So I now love Argentinian people in the way that I love Mexican people <laughs> as well. So how was the race for you? Let's be honest, it was kind of dull, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah. It was striking for being a race in which Verstappen and Red Bull rather confirmed that they seemed to have the upper hand at the moment. We expected Red Bull to go very well this weekend. Unexpectedly, Mercedes nicked the front row off them. But then, come race day, Red Bull had the pace. And once Verstappen got the lead from Hamilton at the first corner, he just ran away with it. Yeah. Never looked troubled. It was just a question of whether Perez or Hamilton would come second. And back down the rest of the field, there was a little bit of toing and froing with Bottas and Ricardo and swapping Ferraris around to try and have a go at Gasly, wasn't it? Yeah. But yeah, I'm struggling to think of anything interesting that happened in the race other than, you know, what was happening at the pointy end. There you go. Kind of dull. What is it they say? Let's dig deep into this, right? Let's eliminate the race for the moment and look at what occurred in qualifying because that was kind of dramatic. This whole business of why Red Bull didn't get pole is arguably down to Perez and Verstappen failing to get the best possible lap in during qualifying. And poor old Tsunoda got blamed for this. Oh, I've been Tsunoda'd. As it turns out, Tsunoda was actually acting on sort of greater Red Bull team orders, wasn't he? He was blamed for going off the circuit. Oh, there was dust and that messed up the A-team Red Bull driver's lap. But in fact, Tsunoda had gone off, as far as I understand it, deliberately to allow the A-team a better lap. Because he'd been just getting out of the way. Uh, yeah, instructed to do so. enthusiastically. Yeah, he yeah, yeah, he did yeah. not make a mistake and go off. He did the best possible thing and got out of the way by literally leaving the circuit. And they still panicked. Understandable. I think if you saw a car out of control in front of you, you'd twitch as well. Yeah. What about Alonso, Sarah? What about his reaction to seeing Bottas? I saw facing that. The- I know, he was carnage everywhere. And, and Fernando Alonso, he just did a quick swerve around at high speed. Yeah, Fernando Alonso really could have made a bit of a traffic jam there. So credit to him, he did really show his skills. They actually yeah. went back and they did a replay from his point of view. Yeah. Very impressive stuff by my man, <laughs> Fernando, <laughs> one of my men. I saw a lovely thing on the Sky coverage after the race where Alonso interviewed Carlos Sainz rather than Rebecca Brooks 
do it for Sky. Alonso was sort of hanging around. She says to him, well, Fernando, why don't you do the interview? And there was this lovely, relaxed conversation between Alonso and Sainz, which was really nice. Yeah, and I don't doubt it. My heart warmed to Alonso for a moment. I'm not the biggest Alonso fan, but he does seem happy at the moment. I'll tell you what, after 20 years mm, in the okay. business, he's exceptional at media skills. He's very good. So I'm not surprised that he did very well with that. Yeah, I think he's also significantly kind of chilled out and got a much sweeter attitude to yeah. life and competition in general that probably also helped in a situation like that where he's I'm guessing here, but he's just maybe a bit better able to just do a really good open interview rather than maybe be a bit more hung up in the moment on your competition with that driver, how you see them in relation to your all-consuming plan to conquer Formula One at all costs. Yeah, that's his nature, isn't it? Yeah. I've definitely warmed him in the last couple of years in a way that I kind of didn't when he was... I mean, I'm going to say at his peak. I mean, he's still on incredible form. You know, the guy is an absolute monster. He's incredible. Yeah. But I find I have much more affection for him now than I did five years ago. Yeah, that moment Mm. where you saw his reaction to seeing this cloud of dust with poor old Bottas facing the wrong way in the middle of a racetrack during a race. It gives you an idea of how cool you have to be in Formula One to be able to deal with a car crash right in front of you. Respect to Alonso for that there was a right kerfuffle at the start and okay opinion from both of you Bottas and Lewis had a game plan presumably to help Lewis get to that first corner before Max but the way that they played it they left the door open for Max to sail around the outside and have that perfect line around the first corner it knackered the whole race. It was almost game over, like you said, Zog, from that first corner. Yeah, I think that was an unplanned result. I think the plan was for Lewis to maybe like tail Bottas with the idea to get sort of around Max Verstappen. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the plan, and then I did that. All just sort of went astray, and then before we knew it, Ricardo had tapped the back of Bottas. Bottas spun. Ricardo was at the back, and then it was just the whole thing was in disarray. And then Max Verstappen took the lead. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I think all you can really do is have a vague plan. You can have an intention for your first corner. But when people say they've got a plan for the first corner or strategy for it, really, as soon as the cars leave the line, your plan's already up in the air. You know, little differences in exactly where someone is means that it's mighty hard to, with any confidence, mastermind your first corner plan. And in that case, it looked like Bottas maybe braked a little bit early, made it a little bit easier for Max to get around the outside. There may have been a reason for that, though. Yeah. There may have been a reason for that because Lewis said something about we've got to get our brakes sorted. Yeah, yeah. So there is a braking issue that the Mercedes team haven't quite got on top of yet where they weren't able to outbreak Max for whatever reason. That Red Bull car, by the way, there was an interview with Adrian Newey, genius, after the race, Adrian Newey, very quiet voice. Sounds like he's slightly out of breath all the time. <laughs> I love listening to him talk. Oh, yeah. But Newey was very honest, I think, about the engineering issue that they had on the rear wing of the Red Bull car, where he explained something. I thought it was really interesting. They put the wing on for the Mexico race that they use in Hungary and Monaco, their maximum downforce wing. 
And what they hadn't calculated for, unusually, because, you know, New is a genius, brain the size of a planet and all that, was that despite the lower air pressure, and I won't say thinner air, because air is not thinner, there's just less pressure because you're higher up, some 4,000 metres, I think, aren't they, in the Mexico circuit. The lower air pressure, despite that, because the terminal speed during qualifying was higher than the race speed, it put a greater load on the rear wing, which caused whatever that failure was that they had to sort of hurriedly use gaffer tape to repair before the race. And that's interesting that even the combined data mining abilities of Red Bull and Adrian Newey's genius, they still get caught out by things. It shows you that sort of fine line. They only build the car like Colin Chapman used to, just strong enough to make it to the end of the race, don't they? Exactly, yeah. If any component is strong enough to last more than the entire race, you've built it too clunky and heavy, would be the caricature of that point of view. They obviously missed a trick there, but got away with it. The fix they came up with, the tape and hot glue and whatever else they were using. Hot glue, yeah. I'm not sure if they were using hot glue, but whatever they did, it worked. Uh, One thing that I thought was a little bit interesting was, again, the number two drivers, uh, both Mercedes and Red Bull, were, for all that it was terrific for Perez to finish on the podium in his home race, wonderful to see how happy he was and the crowd's reaction. Both Perez and Bottas really were a fair way behind their team leaders. You know, neither of them, Red Bull would rather that Perez was taking second place there when their car is so dominant. And yeah, after his first corner incident, Bottas was nowhere in the race, you know, nowhere near backing up Hamilton at the front. A race that actually kind of underlines just how good both Hamilton and Verstappen are. Yeah, I blame Ricardo for Bottas not being able to do better in the race. Yeah. He just couldn't get past him, Sarah, could he? Bottas was tripped up by Ricardo on the first lap, and then for seemingly the rest of the entire race couldn't get past Ricardo. I noticed that. Ricardo's very good at doing that. He's quite good at defending. Remember when he won the Monaco race, and the whole time of the end, although Monaco's a street circuit, but he's very good at keeping cars behind him when he really wants to. Mm. Although Fernando Alonso's good at that too, might I mention. <laughs> Um, (laughs) Ricardo struggled because he lost his front wing so he did okay to sort of almost get in the top 10 well he was in a great position on that first corner I mean he was what fourth or fifth at that point or something yeah I think so and it's a shame actually because I looked at the constructor standings McLaren after that have gone underneath Ferrari so McLaren have gone off their third place into fourth place the table's very tight now while on these standings the other interesting movement this is definitely your area. I love it when you do this. Go, go. Oh, well, let's go to the stats. Let's go down to the standings. Now, Pierre Gasly, for the impact of him coming forth is that Toro Rosso have also moved up. They're now equal with Alpine. And then there's a huge tight tussle at the top. We've got Mercedes on 478.5 and Red Bull on 477.5. So there's one point in it for constructors' titles. And then McLaren, they're not in third place anymore. Ferrari have moved up to third place. McLaren fourth. And then you've got an equal fifth with Alpine and Alfa And the Drivers' Championship... Max has got a commanding lead now. Is it 19 points he's ahead? Is that right? Correct. He's ahead by 19 points. How do you reckon then, just looking ahead, because we've got four races left. We've got Brazil, Qatar... Saudi Arabia. Yeah, Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi. That's it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely just four races to go. How is it going to play out then? Because Qatar is completely unknown. None of them have run there before. But it's a good-sized circuit, I believe. It's got a fast section and a slow section. So 
God, it could go either way. It could be Red Bull. It could be Mercedes. I've got a strong feeling now. I think I'm confident in saying that Max is going to be the driver's world champion. But I do think Mercedes will end up being the constructors champion. Would you two agree? I wouldn't like to call it. I think it's just so close. I mean, like I say, there's four races left to go. So up to 100 points up for grabs. So that 19 point lead that Verstappen has, it's a good lead to have, but it just takes... One race to erase it. Max is the favourite. I wouldn't like to call the constructors. Good. It could go either way. Though it's going to be a great end of the season. Yeah, that's what we want. I don't want Max to get an unassailable lead. I've said this before, but I really think that because this season has been so close, it really deserves to go down to the last race. Mm. And the last race, I think Bottas invariably does well at the Yaz Marina, doesn't he? And I think he could be the key player here. Perez is... Absolutely, no doubt, driving the car better than he has previously. But Bottas is kind of liberated. If he hadn't got tipped by Ricciardo at that first corner, Bottas could well have been on the podium and displaced Perez for this race. And because Lewis has got more to lose than Bottas at the moment, if Lewis and Max are on the same piece of circuit, Lewis is always going to yield. Max has got nothing to lose if they both go out sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So you could say that the Mercedes team are now more reliant on Bottas being alongside Max and challenging with a view, oh, unfortunately, I've taken us both out. No great loss. But will Bottas do that? Because he's kind of liberated now, isn't he? He's not a team man anymore. Or is he? Well, he's certainly been performing well in the last couple of races since we know he's moving on. So I don't think there's any reason to think that he won't have the speed or the confidence and I think he's a team player. You know, he's not going to stick two fingers up to Mercedes. If they've got some team tactic in mind, he wouldn't be anything as crude as taking out Verstappen, but I think he would play the team game. Yeah, I think he's a team player. I think the plan was definitely for him to help out as a team player from pole position this weekend. And also, even though he sort of now knows that his chances to win a title with Mercedes are definitely never going to happen, that's the only thing he can do is just leave with some sort of poise and dignity and grace and be thankful for the time he's had at Mercedes. There's no point in throwing two fingers in the air and saying stuff you. It's not really going to achieve anything. <laughs> yeah, right. dignity is very much one of the words, I think you're right, Sarah, that defines Bottas. They call it Sisu, don't they? The Finnish people, this ability to sort of keep it all under control, even when things are really complicated, a bit like Vulcans. I think Bottas is the nearest thing to Spock we have in Formula One. <laughs> one of the reasons I love him, I love all Finnish drivers, all Finnish drivers. But yeah, okay, so Sarah, can you call it? Who's going to win the constructors? Who's going to win... The drivers, I know we've got four races, but I have to ask you this every opportunity. What's your opinion? I think Red Bull will win constructors because... Really? I do. They're only one point behind Mercedes. Unless Lewis Hamilton can get on the podium with Valtteri Bottas a couple more times, which is quite likely. Or, look, or maybe it will come down to the wire. The Sergio Perez did a great job of getting on the podium. It just depends on how many times maybe their second drivers, their number twos, Valtteri Bottas and Sergio Perez can jump on that podium. And I think Max Verstappen definitely, I'd say he'll win probably more races than Lewis Hamilton. I think it might all just go Red Bull's way. I think they've got the faster car. Mercedes are investing in the car for next year. That's how it's looking for me at the moment. I think it's all about engines. I think Mercedes have slight durability concerns. I think Honda are a bit more confident with the durability of their power units at the moment. 
And I think if Mercedes, as I understand, they turn their engine down a little bit to protect it for the long game, it could go down to an engine going bang. But it's a long time since we've seen that in Formula One. But as we get towards the end of the season, there's a much greater chance of that happening. Yep. With so little time to go, it's easier for the direction of the rest of the season to hang on one critical event. Yeah. You know, if you have one race where Hamilton or Verstappen doesn't finish for any reason, suddenly that's a huge difference where you can come back from at the start of the season. So no more room for error. We've been very good during this episode. We haven't referred to any of the drivers by their first name. <laughs> I know there are a school of thought that says you shouldn't call them by their first names, you should always refer them by their last names. But I thought we should sidestep that by creating new names, even shorter names for the drivers. So instead of Valtteri Bottas, instead of calling him Bottas, we could call him Val. <laughs> we could call Pierre Gasly P. We could call Lewis Lou. So yeah, Lou and Val. But what do we do when we get to Max Verstappen, who's already got the shortest possible name? The only answer there is to extend his name. We have to refer to him as Maximilian Verstappen. Maximilian it is. Yeah, or Maxi. Maxi. Actually, they call him Mexico now, don't they? Because he's won in Mexico three times. Mexico. Mexico. <laughs> like it. There we go. Listen, Sarah, thank you for joining us. Talking Formula One. Thank you. One last thought. You're going to go, oh, when you hear this but in the parade lap at the end when Perez went through the baseball ground section when he raised his hand to acknowledge the crowd was that a Mexican wave? Oh no Very good <laughs> Very, Very good, good. <laughs> well, well it is it's Mexican isn't it? <laughs> right I think I've better leave it there Sarah thank you Thank you Bye bye We'll speak to you in the next episode coming up Alex Goy Zog, stick around and you guys stick around. We've got lots of good stuff for you. Okay, a couple of things for you. I noticed recently that New Order have been gigging again. They were playing at the O2 in London last week. I bet Richard Porter was there. He loves them, so do I. And the other thing, we were talking about Valtteri Bottas there. And it occurred to me, what is Valtteri Bottas's view of Lewis Hamilton, particularly as he's now occasionally quicker than Lewis, outperforms him certainly in qualifying, and how he sees that. So I put those two ideas together, and here's a song in the style, loosely, of New Order, or New Division, I combined Joy Division and New Order, for copyright reasons you understand, and written this song. It's Valtteri Bottas's point of view, the song is called tale of me and you.
You're actually listening right now to the trailer for the dramatic third and final episode of my new three-part documentary series that's being shown on S4C at the moment. It's called Gareth Jones' Novio Adre, it means swimming home. It's the story of how I swam across Wales this summer. If you don't speak Welsh, don't worry, the programme is available with subtitles and is now available on the BBC iPlayer. I'll put a link to that here on the page for this episode of Gareth Jones on Speed. I'd very much like it if you watched it. Thank you. Gareth Jones on Speed. Alex Goy joins us. And Alex, I'm astonished to find that you've even got time to join us today. You've had quite a week, haven't you? Hello. Yes, I've been a little bit busy this past few days, weeks, months, <laughs> years. And by the time you're all listening to this, I will probably be on story a thousand based on the stuff I've been playing in this week. <laughs> yeah, because it's worth talking about, isn't it? It's worth hearing about. <laughs> nice stuff. I've had the kind of week that when 
I was in my early 20s and hoping I would get to do this for a job I would never believe I'd actually have because it sounds too far-fetched and too ridiculous for anyone outside of, like, the Top Gear lot. Okay, let's just do a list then, in that case, of the three ridiculous things that you've done. Very briefly, just name the three cars now. So we had the Kingsley Cars Ulez Reborn Range Rover Classic. We had a legit Ferrari Dino 246 GT. (gasps) And we had, this is the proper pinch me one, the Bentley Blower Team Car, car number two. Um, yeah. <laughs> what do you mean about you, Les Range Rover? Right. So I think we talked about Kingsley Cars here before. And what they do is they beautifully restore Range Rovers. They take knackered Range Rover classics, do a complete restoration, beautifully done, down to the panels, make sure the rotten bits are replaced, and then they future proof the bits that could get rotten with goo that means it can't anymore. They update the tech, they refresh the springs, the exhaust. They can do pretty much anything you want to it. So they can stick in CarPlay, aircon that works, put an LS V8 in it, but they've fixed it or fiddled with the Rover V8. So it'll now do 25 MPG and 270 horsepower. But they worked out that the ULEZ is killing a load of classic cars, especially for people who have, say, some cars and some money, but might not necessarily be able to use them. But there's a 40-year rolling age limit. Yeah. So the Kingsley cars, what they'll do is for a base, and the base is the important bit, of £125,000, will get you a complete restoration and then you get a four litre V8 and everything's super shiny and mark it and do all the paperwork so it's you lazy exempt forever and you can drive around, you can smoke around London in a four litre V8. I drove one with a 4.6 litre V8 with 270 horsepower and it had Apple CarPlay, aircon that worked, wireless charging, a most beautiful leather interior. It had their optional suspension, which was not cheap. And it had everything, basically. They said, oh, hang on, I've got the options list in front of me, I can tell you. Reversing camera, super important. 700 watt sound system, CarPlay, smartphone charging, cruise control. They didn't have the rear iPads for the kids, but that's an option you can have. Big brakes. And all this is on what? A Series 1 Range Rover, is it? Originally? Yeah, Range Rover Classic, an original one. Oh. Off of the 70s. Yeah, because it has to be pre-1981, doesn't it? Yes. Yep. Currently to be ULEZ exempt, you have to be pre-81. Yeah. Do you know what I reckon? I reckon they're going to close this loophole at some point. Because at the moment, old cars are the new new cars Mm. people would just go for their old cars and have them rebuilt and keep them going if they can afford to but i reckon they will even if they meet the requirements no zog you disagree yeah well why would they because they're spoil sports you're not going to close a loophole that a tiny number of people are using a relatively small number of people are going to pay ridiculous amounts of money to have pre-1981 vehicles restored so that they can use them in the ULEZ zone. Yeah, it's just, no, why would they bother? Why would they even bother? They're not going to. I hope you're right, Zog. Yeah, I'm confident that I'm right about this. Yeah, I just can't see it happening. I'd happily make a bet on it, but not going to happen. The reason that they might do this is that the car, Alex, that you've been blasting around in is producing as many unpleasant emissions as a new build car that just doesn't meet. Euro 6 or 5 emissions standards. That's the reason why. Not for any large volume reason, Zoggy. I just think kind of that duty of care thing that if they don't, if the law doesn't outlaw these cars, then the authorities will get banged up for it, as it were. 
Before they close that loophole, I'd like them to close the loophole for taxis, please. Oh, absolutely. Because those TX5s are disgusting. Yeah, yeah, How, Like, yeah. you walk behind them, you cycle behind them, and you just inhale awfulness. Death. So if they're going to start swinging the proverbial around, mm. perhaps, maybe... Do the taxis first. Make the public transport fleet less... Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. oh, what's the word? I've had a very, very long week and my eyes hurt. Unpleasant. Carcinogenic, that's the word. That'll do. OK, um, <laughs> uh, but let's broaden this out because it's a little London-centric. I know the three of us live here and people do visit this capital city, but let's broaden it out because you've driven something which is... Uh, from the 1920s and just about every petrol head's idea yeah. of the perfect car, arguably. So I wasn't expecting to drive this particular one today. I was expecting to drive a Bentley Blower continuation car. That's what I thought was going on. Hang on. That itself yeah. is not a bad day. That's already a pretty good day. One and a half million quid's worth of beautifully put together, hand-built stunningness an exact replica bar a few modifications for modern safety concerns, so says the press release, to the original 1929 Birkin team car. Yeah, I actually ended up driving the £20 million original one. Oh, <laughs> oh. you're right. Oh. Oh. Yeah, so I met the chap at, at Bista, lovely Mike from Bentley. We had an idle conversation. We talked about it on the podcast earlier in the year. You had a ride in it, didn't you? I had a quick ride in it, and I had an idle conversation going... Have these people driven it? Have those people driven it? And talking about the continuation car. And he didn't hear that. He heard this one. And so, yeah. Wow. I ended up driving the blower Bentley, the car. We know the car. Oh. I think we all know the car. One at Le Mans in the 20s. Isn't there some weird stuff about this where you've got the clutch in between the brake and accelerator or something? The clutch is in the normal place. The brake and the gas are switched. Oh, you have to double the clutch because it's a four-speed gearbox from the 1920s. In this particular car, to change from first to second, you have to take it out of first, clutch in, clutch out, and then you go slow and gently into second. So long as you've got gas, if you don't have any gas, it will grind like a mother. And then if you want to go from second to third, you have to then still give it a little bit. And then you've got to go as quickly as you can. But, and this is the big but, if you get on the gas too harshly, as you would say in a modern car, there'll be a big pop and lots of smoke will fly into your face and you taste your own failure. So in other words, it's exactly the same as driving a Morris Minor. <laughs> <laughs> is this description of how the gear change worked? This is a first person direct account of what happened, is it? Yes, well, I was having a driving lesson. They didn't just send me out in it and say, good luck, we'll see you in 20 minutes. I was given sort of the walk around of it. There's two mag switches. There's a starter button. The fuel pump they've replaced with an electric fuel pump because it was just easier than to have to start the thing on a big pump handle. Yeah. And yeah, big old start button. And uh, you had to sort out the engine timing and the retardation and all that. The brakes are woeful, <laughs> but it's OK. You can pull the handbrake if it's getting really urgent. But there, to be honest, it's OK. The steering's really heavy the wheel was massive and i had trouble fitting my leg between the wheel and the seat everything about mm. it is massive and i mean it's two and a half tons or something is it oh, something like that yeah it was just the most mega thing like what a day and did you graunch the gearbox oh yeah oh grief no really 
Oh, yeah, oh, gotcha. Didn't Ittori Bugatti say that Bentley were the world's fastest lorries? Correct. Yes, he did, yes. yes. <laughs> and how fast did you get in it? And where did you drive it? We met up at Bista because that's where it needed to be. So it was a handy meeting point and an hour and a bit for me. A couple of hours for it. And yes, yeah, so we had a quick saunter around a hotel car park. And then it was like, right, I said, are we, are we going on the road? He went, yeah, off we go. Come on. Chop, chop. I did decline to drive it on the A34. That would have been a little bit too much for me, I think. Wow. A little bit too much. But we had, I had a good old chunt around the country lanes of Oxfordshire. And it was just the most ridiculous, ludicrous thing. I can't quite get over the fact that that was the car I drove. I'm so envious. I've driven some good sh- my day. Oh, yeah. And that is... That's up there. <laughs> just wow. Is that the most valuable bit of machinery you've ever driven? Um, I think it's probably the most valuable bit of machinery there is in the world, really. Yeah, it's up there. Try to think. There aren't many cars that are worth more than 20 million. Uh, the only thing that would really eclipse that is a McLaren F1, which I haven't done, or a 250 GTO, which I haven't done. So, yeah, I think that's the most yeah. valuable car I've ever driven. Wow. A, a, a distant second is a Jaguar C-Type, or the long-nosed Jaguar D-Type on the Heritage Fleet. That must be worth a few. Yes, I am aware my life is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, your life is ridiculous. Well, I'm super, super, super envious. Please continue to shake your head in disbelief, Gareth. <laughs> you talked about you know, how difficult the gear changes and the different pedal arrangement and it being so heavy. Yeah, when you're panicking, you really don't want to get that wrong. No. And I did. Uh, <laughs> how much of a kind of step back in time did it feel like? I mean, it's a little difficult to go too far back in time when you're driving down the road and there's a Honda Jazz parked on the side. Yeah. That did rather ruin the illusion. But as something comparable, I drove a Ford Model T, which is a little older and a little weirder and a lot less valuable, but still the one I was in was quite punchy. With that, the pedals are all over the place and the gearbox is really weird. Like, it very much felt of its era, but... Given time, I reckon I could like properly get used to it. So the chap from mm. Bentley who gave me my driving lesson, he was sort of handed the keys earlier in the year and he wears it like a glove. He hustles it. He's driving up and down the road. You've got to be very aware because the braking distances are so long because mm. it weighs a lot and the brakes aren't very good, even though they're enormous. The gearbox you have to be careful with. But once you get that all down, it's just a simple change. Yeah, by the end of it, I was comfortable, but not comfortable enough to drive on an A-road. <laughs> Do you know what? So, in fact, all three of us will have had this experience. We go to Le Mans every year we possibly can. Yeah. One of the greatest joys of going to Le Mans is batting down a motorway or an auto route in France. And you pass a blower Bentley yeah. doing 80 miles per hour. I will do it. With two people with leather helmets, teeth yeah. full of bugs, grinning as much as we are waving at them as we go past. How glorious that you got that chance to do that. Mm. It will definitely do 80 miles an hour. I think I clipped somewhere close to 50, 50-ish, but we were on 60 limit road, so I'm comfortable with that. Mm. It was just the most incredible, silly experience. Oh, there's one little detail. So in the cockpit, the full story will be on thedrive.com at some point over the next few days. Hang on, Alex, where are we going to see it? This one's on thedrive.com. Thank you very much. So there's two little sort of glass eggs in the cockpit and they've got little taps on them. Yeah. So when I got in it earlier in the year, I was told, oh, don't nudge those, they're important. And today I found out why. There's an oil reservoir specifically to feed oil to the supercharger. Mm -hmm. It's sacrificial oil. But if you have too much, you'll suffer. And if you don't have any, the supercharger will explode. 
So you have to keep an eye on those two taps. If they're dripping, you're okay. If they're not, you're in trouble. And you have to keep an eye on your gears and you have to sort out the brakes and make sure your feet are in the right order and make sure the engine timing's okay and press other things, make sure that electrics and temperatures are everything going on, which is complicated enough talking about it. Now imagine doing that at Le Mans for 24 hours straight. Yeah, they were heroes, weren't they? Well done, the Bentley boys. But it's so satisfying Uh, when you kind of get to grips with the machine and you understand it well mm. after, you know, when those things, different older vehicles will have different particular things you've got to keep an eye on. You know, it's very satisfying when you're on top of that and you're able to do the zen thing of your machine. Oh, you do sit on top of it. A steep corner, you would fall out. Okay. (laughs) Let's, as if that wasn't enough, (laughs) try and not faint, salivate, have palpitations at the other car that you've driven in the last seven days. Say it, say it. Go on, go on. A Ferrari Dino 246 GT. A week in the life of Alex Goy. Lucky (laughs) b****. Hey, so this week is abnormal, (laughs) even for me. I am going to pull you up because I hate you having driven that car. I'm going to pull you yeah. up about something immediately, right? I'm just going to nitpick at this because I'm so It's not a Ferrari. Easy. It's not a Ferrari. It's a Dino. The later versions were badged Ferrari, weren't they? But of course, yeah. the Dino brand was created to... Uh, was it Alfredo? Was that his name? Dino's yeah. full name? Alfredo Ferrari. Dino was his nickname. Yeah. It's uh, Enzo's beloved son, yeah. who was an engineering wunderkind, died of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, age 24, yeah. who was partly responsible for the V6 engine that went into Formula 2 cars and various Ferrari Formula vehicles, an evolution of which went into the Dino. Because the whole reason the Dino exists is because it's a homologation job, essentially. F2 regs for 1967. See, I know something about Formula Racing when I've read it and had to write it in a story. Changed, and it meant that the manufacturer had to build 500 production engines to base the race car motor off. So they obviously couldn't Enzo wouldn't put it in a Ferrari. Ferrari couldn't build 500 Dinos. So they had the deal with Fiat. Fiat built the engines. They had their own Fiat Dino cars, which looked rather cool, to be honest. I've driven one. Have you? How was it? I drove a Fiat Dino, well, co-drove it, down to Le Mans with my great mate Rob Muller. Oh, that's mega. It was the car, I think it's got the most photographs taken of it that I've ever been to Le Mans (laughs) in. It was a a silver Spider, the convertible, the same engine as your car, the two-litre V6, and it was just delicious. Mm. Something I discovered fairly recently, I didn't know that the Dino was actually built by Scaglietti, wasn't it? The coach built it for Ferrari. Ferraris, of course, were all V12s in those days, so mm. no wonder they didn't want to badge a six-cylinder car as a Ferrari. Yeah, but okay. okay, so yeah. this car is from this version, what, 67 you drove? It's a later car, 246, so it's a later 2.4. Oh, it's a 246? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, 246. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It's a bit more sorted, a bit more poke to it. Let me grab my spec sheet. Hang on. It's about 280 brake or something like that. No, that no, way less than that. Way, way, way less than that. Sorry, 150, two, two, I mean. 180, I meant to no, say. No, no, it's, it's 192 for the 2.4. Uh-huh. In its road trim, in race trim, I imagine it would have been something else. But yeah. 2.4 to V6, 192 brake horsepower, 166 pound foot, not to 62 in 7.1, it would do 146. Lovely. Uh, five on the floor, beautiful dog leg box. Yeah. Well, I say beautiful, beautiful to look at, pain in the ass to use. Did you um, have second gear? There's something about a lot of Ferraris, I've only driven one, but there's something about a lot of Ferraris, mid-engine Ferraris, where the oil in the gearbox 
doesn't heat up for 20 minutes or half an hour. So you can't actually get second gear for the first half hour. You've got to go from first D-clutch to third. Did you have to do something like that? No, actually. I was lucky. Basically, once we started the car, we didn't really stop it, bar a quick lunch break. So it was nice and warm for the whole day. Yeah, It was okay. It's just that the issue I had with it, it was that the gearbox didn't decide how it wanted to be treated so sometimes you need to go slow and steady and notch it in. You get the kind of a beautiful click clack and it was really lovely. And then it would go, oh, no, you need to be far more aggressive. Otherwise, otherwise I'm going to lurch at you. So then you kind of give it some and it's like, yep, fine. You know, wow, that's proper great. And then again, it goes, no, oh, for f- sake. It's a racing gearbox, isn't it? It's bloody annoying is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> what was the best thing about it? What I really liked is I, when I was doing my reading on it, the brochure for the Dino said, tiny, brilliant, safe, almost a Ferrari. Correct. <laughs> what? That's just mean. <laughs> That's just rude. <laughs> you know, it was one of the most ridiculous things. The steering is the thing that gets me. And I now understand why people love it. Because, oh my God, it's so light, but so communicative. Because the car weighs you know, nothing. But it, it's so light, so communicative, so beautiful to behold. And you just dart from corner to corner to corner. And the throttle response is so instant because it's a V6 that's attached to a pedal by proper means rather than electronic trickery. It was mega. It was so eye-opening. Was it left or right-hand drive? This was a right hooker, so it's a rare one. Because I don't think you can get the 206. They were all left-hand drive, weren't they? But the 246, Mm. they did make them in right-hand drive. It was built that way, not converted, presumably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was interesting because the pedals were offset to the centre of the car because your feet are where the wheels are. Yeah, yeah. Zog, you got Mm. a favourite Ferrari? Always really like the 250 LM. Lovely. Yeah. Race car. Well, well, road race car. They were road legal as well. I'm not sure how many were used on the road. The 250LM is the one that the 296, the new Ferrari, is sort of based on. Mm. Uh-huh. So if you have a look at the 296 next to the 250LM, that rear quarter, where the rear window should be or would be in a Dino, and it kind of floats down. Instead, it's that solid thing with a haunch-mounted air intake. Yep. That's what the 296 is. So the reason yeah, I was driving yeah. is essentially to get handle on the origin of the 296 so why is a mid-engined v6 ferrari so special where is this come from and it came from the dino the ferrari dino whatever you want to call it even though enzo didn't want to make it the first mid-engined road-going v6 ferrari ever built it came from this so it's trying to get a bit of a handle on like that legacy and the legacy of the car itself is kind of fascinating because if Venzo had... Sorry, I, I hate referring to people by their first name. As you know, if Ferrari had had his way, it wouldn't have been a thing because mm. he didn't think consumers were ready for it. And if that had actually happened, mm. how would history have played out? If that car didn't exist... All Ferraris would have been front-engine V12s and V8s ever since. We would never have had that tremendous heritage of mid-engine. F40, 288, F50, Enzo, LaFerrari, yeah. none of them. 458, one of the finest road cars ever made, wouldn't exist. If I may, you this week have driven two dinosaurs, because yeah. you could argue that that Range Rover was a dinosaur. Yeah. The Bentley is certainly a sauropod of some massive size yes and you've driven perhaps something that could be described as an archaeopteryx that point where (laughs) dinosaurs and birds kind of went okay we're working something out here things are going to change yeah how interesting you are the david attenborough of gareth jones on speed at the moment (laughs) (laughs) here you see a dino 246 gt in its natural habitat parked here outside gto engineering 
here waiting for a shiny <laughs> journalist to pick it up and be excited about for the next day and a half. Very good. I do need to give big props to GTO Engineering because when I put a picture up on Instagram and Twitter and people said, oh, is that a revival car? Because I've spent a lot of time out there driving those. Mm. And it's not, but I needed one. I needed a Dino to tell a story as I had one and then it was cruelly taken away from me for reasons that will be hilarious one day, but incredibly annoying now. And yeah, so I rang them up and went, any chance you've got a Dino in that I could borrow? And they went, yeah, this bloke said we can use his for marketing purposes. This is technically marketing. Fill your boots. So I owe them a million beers. Okay. And if you want to watch a film on the 250 short wheelbase revival from GTO Engineering, there's one live on Carfection right now. Where can we see it, Alex? Carfection. Thank you very much, Alex. That's my cashier number three voice. Cashier <laughs> number four, please. We're not going to let you come on this <laughs> programme and do these incredible things, even though we are vicariously enjoying it. Right, we're going to let you carry on doing this. Not that we let you, we want you to. <laughs> I'm going to regardless. And, you know, I'm trying to imagine something that is better than that. And about the only thing I can think of is I'm going to put you on the spot here and ask if you'll do this for your lookalike, Mr. Ierson, Zog, alongside you virtually at the moment. Alex, have you driven any Bugattis that were built before the 1980s? No, I have not. Okay. It's very much on the list, Quite but right. it's one of the things where, much with Dino, much with Blower, or all these things, I only pick, well, I pick, I only kind of find stories that I have a reason to tell. Okay. So right now, the V6 story kind of matters. The blower story's been going for a while, but... Mm. Well, yeah. in that case, as Rimats have bought Bugatti, there is a reason for you to drive and take my friend with you to drive it. <laughs> Zog, would it be a Type 25 you'd like to drive? Type 35, surely. 35. 35. A Type 35 would be the one that would be top of the list, but any old Bugatti would be a pleasure and a joy. But yeah, type 35 top There you list. go. You know what? I know some people to talk to and we can... Good luck. Uh, yeah. Well, there Le- you go. Leave with. Let's make it happen. Let's make it happen. As your agents, this is the theme here, right? This article will be, look, I've had lots of fun driving the greatest cars ever. It's getting <laughs> to a point where I can't believe it anymore. I've got to share the love. So, the biggest Bugatti fan I know in the universe, I'm going to take him and let him drive a Bugatti and we're going to write an article about that. Zog, I take care of you, brother. I take care hey. of you. <laughs> Alex, thank you for joining us. Yes. Uh, yeah, sorry. Normal service will soon resume. I'll just be driving one ridiculous car every two weeks rather than three in one week. And wait till you see what I've got next week. Oh, ah. don't, don't. Oh. <laughs> don't make us any more envious. We're going to have terrible to you. Say goodbye, Alex. Bye. Say goodbye, Zog. Goodbye. This has been Gareth Jones on Speed. And if I was in the same room now, I'd be punching Alex. Ooh, you lucky, lucky basket. <laughs> Fair. To send us an email, see pictures, get song lyrics, join our Facebook fan site, follow us on Twitter, or to find out about sponsorship opportunities, go to garethjones.tv. Gareth Jones on Speed is made in London by Whizbang. Gareth Jones on Speed! Speed!